Russia is paying a huge price in terms of blood and resources for every inch of Ukrainian territory it tries to seize. The capture of Solidar, a small town of little strategic importance that it claims to have taken over the weekend, underscores this, as it likely cost many thousands of Russian lives. But a war of attrition and stalemate on the front line is the last thing Ukraine needs. Will a defeat of Russia's forces in 2023 finally bring an end to its genocidal war against its neighbour? Or will the drip feed of Western weapons and support undermine Ukraine as we go into the spring? Please like and subscribe to see more great speakers and the content we produce for the Silicon Curtain channel. Today I'm speaking with Anders Puck Nielsen, influential YouTuber and military analyst based in Denmark. He specializes in naval warfare and strategy, but in today's video, we are gonna be talking much more about the ground campaign in Ukraine. Uh, Anders, welcome to the channel. Thank you. It's really great to have you, and I've been watching a lot of your materials um, uh, since the start of the invasion. Um, but let's sort of get started um, with the invasion because you produced a video <clears throat> even before it began really suggesting that this might happen and it might not just be a limited uh, incursion. Uh, so tell me, you know, what were the signals and the signs that for you at least suggested that an invasion was on the cards? Well, to me, back almost a year ago, now, actually more than a year ago, I, uh, I, you know, you know, I think uh, the the demands that Russia came out with just before Christmas uh, in in 2021 that was really the moment when I thought, this is strange, this is this is weird. These demands they don't make any rational sense if if whatever they're doing around Ukraine is just posturing. Um, they were basically inviting for uh, a diplomatic defeat. So. My reading of it at the time was that there has to be some kind of bigger plan. They have to have um, some idea that this is going to be a big thing where they're going to solve a lot of problems because with the reaction they got from NATO, with the, uh, with the reaction they got from Ukraine before the outbreak of the war, my reading of it was that they would have lost. I mean, I know other analysts have different opinions in saying that you know, right until the moment of the, the war broke out, Putin was actually winning. I did not see it that way. Um, the way I saw it, uh, he, Russia was basically getting more of all the things they were saying they did not want. Uh, they were getting a more united NATO, um, stronger uh, support for Ukraine, um, uh, more NATO engagement on the borders to, to, to Russia. So, so that was basically my reading at the time that, you know, this has got to be uh, the time when Putin actually wants to solve all these problems that he has been talking about for years, um, basically solving the, the, the kinds of problems he was talking about uh, or writing about um, about six or seven, maybe half a year, eight months before the outbreak of the war, he published um, an article um, basically outlining his view of, of Ukraine. And I thought, okay, this this has got to be the time he actually wants to to sort of fix this and and that's that's an interesting point isn't it because we fail to take leaders like this at their word you know hitler told us what he was going to do in mein kampf but it was so outside of the norms of you know normal diplomatic and political behavior um 
that it wasn't believed. And similarly, Putin's been telling us for quite some time um, what he intends to do and the fact that he sees Ukraine and Ukrainian independence, well, firstly, not as a real thing, but secondly, as a problem that he felt he needed to solve. Yeah, absolutely. Many of these uh, autocrats, they are actually quite happy to tell us what they want to achieve and why they want to achieve it. They often lie about how they're going to achieve it, but they usually are um, actually want to make their case for why their policy is uh, is right and why they are actually the good guys. And once they launched that campaign, which took many analysts by surprise, uh, both on the Russian side and Western military analysts, and in speaking to many people uh, over this last year, I formed the impression that there were only a tiny number of people within the Russian administration who knew this was coming. Uh, almost the entire bureaucracy, military establishment, military planners, no one believed this was going to happen. And then when uh, Western intelligence, the British and the US, named the actual date of the invasion, apparently, according to some Russian sources, they actually guessed correctly. So then Putin felt the need to change the date of uh, of the invasion. And that threw a lot of the logistics and planning out of whack. I don't know if you've you've sort of heard similar theories. Well, it's definitely possible. I think um, it's also possible, as uh, Rusi has suggested, that that just the Russian sort of idea of operational security, that they, they wanted to keep everything a secret just to sort of preserve the operational security around the thing. It was actually a bit too much because it just meant that, that, that too few people in the Russian administration were sort of... Um, uh, were, were warned in advance, so they had a chance to do the, the proper planning for the operation. So uh, regardless the, the the cause of this, I mean, in hindsight, it's pretty easy to see that uh, there were many mistakes made by the Russians. It did not work at all the way they, they had intended. And, um, uh, you know, within a month, they also had to, to totally revise their, their campaign plan. And it did not seem that they actually had a plan for um, what to do if the first plan doesn't work. But this has been a year of humiliations for Russia, hasn't it? We had the retreat from Kiev. We had Kharkiv Oblast retaken, Kherson, and latterly uh, their failures to retake uh, Bakhmut. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's definitely not been a good year for uh, for Russia. And uh, in the beginning of the of the war or the invasion, the, the general assumption was that, that, that Russia would be doing pretty well, that, that the Russian army was in a good shape after uh, almost 15 years of reforms uh, that, that we had to do with a modern and capable fighting force. And definitely we've had to adjust that picture and just say that, that there were many things where they weren't as good as we thought they'd be. And, um, you know, Absolutely a humiliation in many ways, but we also have to remember that equally on the Ukrainian side, I think uh, many outside analysts have been surprised by how good the Ukrainians have been, um, that, uh, you, you know, that there was this general assumption that that the Ukrainian army that would be facing the Russians would be very much the same kind of army as in, in, in 2014. And it turned out not to be the case at all. The, the, the Ukrainians have really learned, have really um, have been, been able to do 
amazing transformation since the war in 2014, 2015. So I think I think it's it's kind of goes both ways. Um, we we probably overestimated the Russians. We believe their reforms were more successful than they actually were. Um, but but we also underestimated um, the Ukrainians in many ways. Assumed that they would not have been able to make the steps that they have done uh, in 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 just so few years. So yeah, it's uh, I I think the Ukrainian. Um, success has also contributed to the image that that this is a, a failure for the Russians. And it's interesting, isn't it? If you talk to, you know, I listened to a lot of analysts who were consistently getting things wrong, even when the war started, overestimating Russian capability over and over and over again. Um, and yet those people like Ben Hodges and others who actually had much more direct contact with people who trained the Ukrainians, they had a different view because I think they'd seen over the last eight years how they had responded extraordinarily well to NATO strategy support and training. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, um, you know, I think uh, those who have who have been in Ukraine uh, working with the Ukrainians, they, of course, would have that sense that, no, this this transformation is is going very rapidly. And I think I think there's there are several things in this. And I think actually. Uh, probably analysts like myself are going to be spending years looking into this in the in the future, seeing what exactly worked so well for Ukraine in in, in those years between uh, the two big wars. But I think a lot of it had to do with, on the one side, of course, training. Uh, and on the other hand, the feeling that there's a kind of burning platform that that something had to be done. And then, of course, that you have the simmering war all the time in the Donbass, where um, the Ukrainians were able to get a lot of experience actually with the Russians and the Russians were very, let's say, generous in showing all their equipment. Uh, so the Ukrainians learned how to actually deal with the Russian army um, and, uh, and and how to prepare for a big war like, like the invasion we saw in February. That's one of the most extraordinary things, I think, um, is the sheer number of Ukrainians who've been exposed to military experience by going and spending a bit of time on the front over the last eight years and then returning to civilian life. And it's bizarre to think that, you know, a huge country like that was functioning with part of its territory in a state of almost perpetual warfare. It's an incredible circumstance. But how on earth did the Russians not factor that in? They seem to have completely ignored the idea that their role in, in really sort of training and upskilling, um, you know, the Ukrainian army. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think a lot of it has to do with uh, hubris, I, I'd say. Um, and a lot uh, is, you know, you know, the fingers point to the top, right? That, that this is many of these mistakes were made in, in the Kremlin. Uh, they were more political mistakes than they were really military mistakes. Uh, the assumptions that Putin had about how how to win this war and basically the assumptions about Ukraine. Uh, what What is the natural state of Ukraine? Is Ukraine actually, is it a real, is it a real nation state or is it just uh, some part of, uh, of of Russia that, does, that doesn't really understand it? Um, and, and then, of course, the whole isolation of Putin during COVID uh, may, may probably have all contributed to this uh, misunderstanding and just not realizing 
what the actual facts are and 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 how uh, Ukraine was changing while all this was going on, while Putin was getting um, uh, annoyed that that the things were dragging out in the Donbas, and he he felt that this is not going anywhere. Then, in fact, Ukraine was actually going somewhere at a very rapid pace. And it's interesting. One of the first videos in your channel that really sort of took off uh, in a big way was the one that talked about NATO capability uh, and sort of comparing it to uh, you know why we overestimate the Russians. That was one of the first videos. And then the one that really went huge was already in the war, wasn't it? Which was looking at, um, I guess, sort of equipment or, or strategic failures around equipment. And that was the sinking of the Muskvar. So tell me a little bit about the genesis of your channel and you know, that moment when you realized there was a, a huge audience for the kind of expertise that you've got. Yeah, I, I've had the channel for a couple of years. It was, uh, it's just been a very small uh, channel um, with, uh, let, let's say, a, a, a modest number of, of viewers. Um, but that, that meant that when the war started, I kind of had a, a concept uh, in a uh, I, I I had sort of the, the technical routine of how to actually make a video, how how, how to make these things work, how to edit uh, all these things, and I I, I felt that this was um, it, it would be a good way for me to to get my my ideas out there to basically make myself useful. I'm like uh, if when you're a military analyst, this is uh, <laughs> this is why we have military analysts. Like we we should be out there. Um, and I also thought that, you know, I, when I started making these videos about the, the the war, that was, of course, before the war actually started, I thought, well, this is also a kind of uh, a way to, to, to put get some some stakes into this, like actually going out and predicting that this war is going to happen before before it did. I, uh, if, I, I ran a bit of a risk there because if. If it, if it didn't come, then then I would be looking kind of foolish. But I thought that this is this is important because it it it's um, you know we have to get this message out and 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 also to document. Um, people can go back over time and see when I when I was right, when I was wrong, so they can sort of estimate what, what uh, am I a good analyst or not? You know, so so basically that was some of the ideas in the beginning. I thought that okay, this is uh, th this might be useful for somebody. And then, as you said, it really took off, especially after the Moskva video. Um, so that, that of course changed the channel quite a bit when I suddenly started realizing okay there's actually quite a few people um uh, watching this and and some people um might react to whatever i say so i i have to be maybe um maybe put double the attention into making sure that whatever i say is actually correct and not just kind of winging it um but but it's it's been an interesting journey for me of course to oh, on, on youtube um to to see how 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 that has taken off and uh the channel has become popular and of course, people always want uh, to know what's going to happen next. They want predictions. But I think the strength of your channel is you deal with with actual known issues, you know, whether it be strategic failures or logistic equipment failures and sort of analyze that and put it in the context, perhaps, of military theory, which, you know, myself, and many others won't be won't be aware of. Um, but, you know, the the inevitable question does come up. There are a number of scenarios for how this war ends. I mean, one is a stalemate. 
Uh, one is that the conflict gets frozen along North Korea lines. Another one, of course, is that Russia is defeated uh, decisively uh, and pushed back across the borders. In either scenario, we're left with Ukraine becoming almost like a fortress um, and almost the prospect of then having to build some kind of you know, 21st century Maginot line um, to divide um I would say the anti-democratic East from the European Union and the sort of values that we're defending. I mean, what's your thoughts on where this might end up? Yeah, I, I think um, sometimes in the in the big perspective, it, it, sometimes it can be useful to look at things in the very long perspective and see where is this going to go in five years, ten years time. I think. Uh, you know the end game here is that we're gonna. This is a this is a new Cold War, or uh, I mean, I think after uh, this whole thing with the invasion is over, I think a new Cold War would be a good result because that means that we are not in a hot war. We're not going to be friends with Russia again. That's not going to happen in the, in the coming maybe decades. So so basically, what we're fighting about right now, uh, or what what the Ukrainians are fighting about is where the new Iron Curtain is going to be. And, and I think that's the realization we have to, to make here that, that there is no way after this that, that, that we're going to resume sort of normal relations with Russia. So basically this is a fight about where the new Iron Curtain in, in Europe is going to be. Is it going to be on the, the Russian side or is it going to be on the Western side? Um, or is it going to be somehow divided uh, a divided Ukraine with some part of Ukraine on one side and another part on the other side, but I think that's what the that that's what this is about. And um, I then then we can of course get into the sort of sort of shorter perspective about how long is this active fighting in Ukraine going to take. And I think it's hard to say. I mean, it, it definitely looks like Russia is preparing for this to uh, to be a, a war in the long term. I think it also looks like. Uh, the West is prepared to help Ukraine in the long term, so it might be a long war. It might also end in in in, in 2023. Uh, we don't know that, um, and 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 because we don't know that, then I think the most useful assumption is to assume that this is going to take a long time, because basically that's what it takes to um, to to help Ukraine. We have to equip Ukraine to fight and win this war in, in the long run. Um, if we if we in the West believe that this is all going to end in the summer, then why would we actually build those factories that produce the, the munitions, right? Why would we, um, you know, spend money on equipment that is not going to be ready in another year or two years? But we have to we have to assume that that in, in that time frame, we will still be fighting. Uh, so we make those investments um, because otherwise Russia might win. That's the real concern, isn't it? And uh, that was going to be one of my one of my questions we listed here, <clears throat> which is that it's said that time isn't on Russia's side, but actually, you know, it is in Russia's interests to have a stalemate, to have a war of attrition, to have uh, you know a continued artillery duel. Uh, along a sort of static First World War style front line, that's in their interest because they don't have any consideration for how many men they throw at this, uh, uh, for the individual lives that are wasted. I mean, for them, that's not a price. Whereas on the Ukrainian side, every life is precious. Um, 
and a certain amount of economy uh, in men and resources needs to inform their thinking. I say men, men and women, because, of course, there are a lot of women on the front lines as well in Ukraine. Um, so what's your take on that? What kind of war is Russia now pushing for, given that they haven't made any sort of decisive blitzkrieg kind of successes? Yeah, I think that's uh, that's like the common assumption that the Russians are very good at suffering, right? And they can endure all kinds of things that uh, Westerners can't because we we care too much about our own lives or uh, we're decadent or whatever. But I think I'm, I'm not sure that's entirely true, that, that the Russians will necessarily endure that much pain. Um, I, I, I think that is the way the war is going right now. I think we might very well see another wave of mobilization very soon. Um, I think, you know, when Putin looks out at how, how did the mobilization go in the, in, in the fall, I think he basically think it, it went pretty well. Right? We didn't see widespread protests. There were some protests, but it wasn't that bad. So I think the assumption is that, okay, they can do this again. And that is the way they're going to win the war. But I think we will eventually see ordinary Russians beginning to complain about this. I don't think they're going to take this um, as well in the long run as as, as Putin assumes. Um, and, and that might very well be what decides the, the, the war in the end. How, how long is Russians going to be willing to go to the front line uh, to, to, to sacrifice themselves, sacrifice the family members um, for this cause? Um, we are probably going to see over this year, 2023, that the war will change from that special military operation, the rhetoric about this being a little minor thing going on in Ukraine, and turn, basically turning Russia into a full-scale war mode. Um, but uh, I, I'm not sure that, that, that the, the Russian population will be there for Putin on that journey. Um, and, and I think a very good argument can be made that, that you know, Putin assumes that this is like uh, 1942 or something. It's just about the time when things will change, and, you know, the tide will change and, and Russia will start winning. I think this might be 1916. And, uh, you know, we're heading towards a kind of collapse in Russia. And that's also a way for Ukraine to win. Um, so um, it's it, it's going to be be interesting to see how how Russians will react to the to the continued fighting where increasingly Russia will be throwing mobilized infantrymen at Ukrainian Bradley fighting vehicles right it's it's just an unfair fight and and the, the casualty numbers might be enormous this summer it evokes that image of the Polish army attacking uh, panzers with horses. If you've ever seen that one from 1939, absolutely brave, but but horrific. Um, the other aspect, of course, is industry and logistics, because in the Second World War, many Russians, especially the ones that are propagandized, they forget how much material uh, in terms of sort of raw material, but also finished um goods like jeeps and so on were actually supplied from the us to russia it was millions of tons worth of, uh, of equipment and material uh, as well as food and of course they also had a much more developed domestic industry at that point uh because of the rapid industrialization uh, obviously it, it was inefficient and it was brutal and it was inhumane 
But in terms of total quantity of output, they had a much better developed military base at the um, basis at the time. If the rumors are true, their rate of firing missiles and their rate of firing off artillery has dropped off significantly in the last few weeks. Is that tactical or is that in recognition that their supplies are not as bottomless as perhaps uh, we'd assumed? It, it, it's hard to say for sure, but um, I, I think there's been a lot of talk about when is Russia going to run out of munitions, uh, they, they will run out of missiles. Yeah, I, I think they will not. They will never run it out entirely. They still have a production of these things, but we're getting closer and closer to the point where they they can't fire more than they than they can keep producing. So so it will be on a lower level. And I think I you know I, I think an important point about the industry is that we talk a lot about what can the West what can the Western industry provide. We can't provide munitions in the at, at the speed Ukraine can fire, the, right? we, we need to get our industry into a, a, a higher pace. But the Russians have the same problem. And uh, I think if we just look at the industrial base of the entire West compared to the industrial base of Russia, I think if this becomes a war where industries are basically competing with each other, it's very hard for me to see the Russian industry outcompeting the Western industry. I just don't think that's going to happen. So I don't I don't agree with the um with the assumption that a long and protracted war would be in Russia's interest. I think uh it would be in Russia's interest to to have uh, a quick war, have this end somehow, or it would be in Russia's interests for this to turn into a frozen conflict where it's less intensive than today, but basically we return to a kind of situation as it was before uh the the invasion last february where there, there it's not really peace but it's not really a, a very intensive war i think that that's that's the kind of war that russia can sustain i don't think they will be able to sustain it at this level so basically what it comes down to is if russia is going to win this war then that is because the west loses the determination as long as the west is determined united then then russia is losing and a lot of russian propaganda is now turning to trying to undermine that uh, coherence that unity trying to undermine as you say that long marathon style commitment that is that is required there um and you know one of the reasons for this channel is to try and fight some of those propaganda messages which i have to say are not working that well in europe but in say the global south and other areas and russia of course has partners in china and uh, iran which do amplify their propagandistic messages so do you think you know the information warfare has played more of a role in this war than in other wars um or is it comparable? Because, of course, it was a big feature of the Second World War as well, wasn't it? You know, propaganda and actually offensive propaganda mounted by the British against the Germans. Yeah, sure. And, um, you know, the Russians do uh, have, sometimes have success with information warfare. I will say um, the Ukrainians have also managed to do a very good sort of information campaign uh, to both counter the Russian information campaign, but also to to sort of take the initiative at that point. So we've seen a lot of information warfare here. I think actually also on 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 NATO's side, there's been a, a lot of good work done to to sort of try to go beyond that and 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 
uh, negate some of the Russian talking points here. Um, I think a very important, sometimes underestimated um, element in in you know the, the Western campaign has been to alleviate the problems of the economic crisis and to just uh, solve the, the 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 gas crisis in Europe and and how important that actually is for the, the the sustainment of the war in Ukraine that Europe and the West as a whole will be able to go on um, and 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 sustain this war without it becoming um uh something that 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 is super important in domestic debates and and will determine election results because that that's just not the case right now i mean in, in the russian media the gas crisis is, is extreme and you know uh, uh people in europe are huge problems and uh, riots and all those things that's just not the case right uh, we don't have that and uh, uh at least where uh, you, you know, in Denmark, where, where I am, the debate about the economic crisis is is basically never connected to to Russia anymore, and Russia is never discussed as a kind of solution to um, uh, to the economic crisis. And I think separating those two things is actually super important for helping Ukraine in in the long run. Mm. And the period where <clears throat> that kind of uh, gas or energy blackmail was going to work most was this winter and actually we're a good part of the way through the winter now uh we're probably over the hump that was the highest risk for for western economies and you know amazingly the infrastructure has already been built to um bring in you know liquefied uh, natural gas um other supplies are found other sources are starting to come on tap um this perhaps is putin's biggest strategic gamble and biggest failure, isn't it? He thought that this energy blackmail would really push us to the negotiating table to give him concessions. Um, that hasn't happened, and he's played probably his strongest card. Yeah, uh, I, th I think on two um, on two sides there, you can say on on the one hand, he he. If we go back uh, to say September or October, I think that in Russia there was a very strong. Uh, uh, sort of idea that they would win over the winter because on the one hand, Europe would not be able to sustain the, the support for Ukraine because of the gas crisis and, and all those things, we would be freezing. Uh, that clearly did not happen. And also uh, there was the idea that they would be able to basically uh, bomb uh, Ukraine into darkness and, and uh, it would be a huge humanitarian disaster in, in Ukraine over the winter. That is also not materializing. Um, you know, absolutely, the, the, the missile strikes are uh, a big problem for Ukraine. But I think Ukraine has been able to 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 manage that, uh, to build their defenses, to get uh, to be very very good at managing the the energy uh, infrastructure as a, as a whole, so that the country will get through the winter. And this means that basically those two things that Putin thought would win the war for him during the winter, they are not materializing. And, and he burned, um, a lot of his best, uh, weapons in, in, in the process. And, uh, uh, so, so, uh, you know, that, that's probably, uh, one of the concerning things, I guess, for for Putin when he looks at this and, and says, "Okay, this 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 is turning into a long war because all those things they it, it just didn't work." Yeah, they've played the card, and uh, and uh, the Ukrainians 
have got so much more efficient at bringing those energy um you know generation facilities back online faster uh than they did when that bombardment began well i know we haven't got that much time one topic i really wanted to cover off uh which i thought was absolutely fascinating again it addresses i think the popular perception of how russia might collapse with actually the perhaps much more nuanced version of how it is already fragmenting and that is the creation of private military interests private armies um of which wagner is the most visible one but it's not the only example of uh you know these private initiatives um essentially the privatization of violence uh which is illegal under uh, russian law in fact and yet we see wagner um and your wholesales conscripting, uh, you know, murderers, thugs, etc., from the prison system. I mean, it's an extraordinary uh, thing that's taking place. I mean, it has to be said there are parallels in history. Um, the British in Northern Ireland did have a uh, a, a group of irregulars, uh, you know, extracted from criminals who who terrorised the population. So it's not unheard of. Um, but I wouldn't want to necessarily equate the two because that 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 really upsets my audience. Um, <laughs> but the scale they're doing it on is extraordinary. But doesn't it speak to something far more fundamental, which is the fragmentation of the Russian state uh, into almost like sort of mafia clans or or even worse, warlords? Yeah, uh, I, I, I absolutely. I, I think that is that is something that is happening at a very rapid pace and it is uh it's a development that is worrying in the sense that it means that to to an increasing degree uh the decisions about how russia behaves on the battlefield and and why they act as they do might not actually be determined by by what are Russia's interests, but increasingly about what are the interests of, of these different warlords that are making money or somehow becoming dependent on the war, and and that is it's it's basically I I uh, you know I guess we can we can draw on Mary Calder's idea of new wars that was sort of de developed about um, uh, you know you know all these wars in Africa that basically turn into forever wars where they they never end and and why is it that 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 is the case and. The reason why that is happening is that, um, you, you know, the people that are doing the violence become dependent on the violence because that is their source of that, that, that the source of resources, their source of power and influence. And if the war stops, then they don't have any they're not relevant anymore. So, so I think we're beginning to see that happening also in, in, in Russia and in Russia's war. We, of course, have people like Prigozhin. Why, why on earth would Prigozhin want the war to end? It's great for him, isn't that? I mean, maybe it's a bit too intense right now. He's going to run out of prisoners eventually. But, you know, if we can get uh, a war on a somewhat lower scale, you know, where it's sustainable and Wagner can make a lot of money and Prigozhin will have a platform, that's great. Um, uh, but I... I I, I think essentially, um, you know, we might get to a point where Putin himself also becomes personally dependent on this war to never end, because that might be the way to 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 keep the power in the country, right? And that, that if they lose, then then he, he he might lose the power. There's no way he could make a peace deal if if the situation on the battlefield is such that that Russia would have to make the concessions. 
no way he's going to win. I I, I don't see how, how how that is going to materialize anytime soon. So so we might end up pretty soon in a situation where Putin cannot allow this war to ever end. Um, so so that is a very dangerous dynamic where it, it suddenly becomes personal interests rather than than the interests of the Russian state that that basically uh, matter in, the, in in this case. And uh, through this year, sales of the book 1984, apparently in translation, have rocketed in Russia. And it has a very much a feel like that, doesn't it? This forever war, big brother using this perpetual conflict to, uh, you know, create this sort of tyrannical uh, architecture. Um, and North Korea is probably the classic example of that actually happening in reality. But as you say, there are, you know, this isn't just theoretical or, 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 you know, literary. Um, the education system in Russia is being transformed as we speak, uh, inculcating, you know, from kindergarten upwards, children with the idea that, uh, you know, Russia is a militaristic state, that its survival is dependent on a kind of tooth and claw struggle. Um, and you see these horrific images of, uh, you know, toddlers being shown how to strip down Kalashnikovs and so on. Um, this isn't just propagandist sort of conceit. Uh, this is this is happening uh, across the country, isn't it? Yes, it is. And, uh, you just have to turn on the Russian news. You will see how militarized it is compared to to Western countries like a Russian. Uh, if you have a, a Russian news show, it can be 45 minutes. Out of those 45 minutes, at least 40 of them is going to be about military topics, right? That's how militarized the Russian society is. Um, and and um, I, I, it can be hard to understand for Westerners how, how, how military topics can apparently be that important for a, whole, for a whole nation. But apparently that is the case. And I think the transformation we're going through or we're seeing Russia going through right now, it's, um, it's, it's, it's going to be super decisive for Russia for, for generations. Um, the, the, the tricky thing is we don't quite know what direction this is going. Um, is this going to lead to uh, a Russia even more determined for revenge, uh, a Russia that is uh, uh, going to be militarized for generations, or is this going to be uh, a, a national trauma for Russians for, for generations? But th there's no way you can wage a war like this and, and it not influencing the, uh, uh, the 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 country the 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 nation um so it it, it will be super interesting but, but to, to watch um but you know those russian men on on the uh, in the trenches right now they they are they are going to go home and they're going to have families and this is forever going to be you know oh oh it's that thing in in you you can't talk about that because daddy experience whatever and we, we we cannot mention or whatever you you know this is going to influence also the russian society it's going to change the russian society and i can see it going both ways both in the in, in the direction where it's it's more hostility uh more determination but also where this becomes a uh a, a, a huge trauma for generations and 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 russians will have to find some way to get over it and that could really fester couldn't it you know psychologically socially and culturally because if they lose, I mean, they're certainly not winning at the moment, but if they lose catastrophically and decisively, even if they lose Crimea, which would be a huge blow uh, to uh, to Russian prestige, then <clears throat> these personal feelings of sort of trauma, loss, et cetera, 
that that you know that could be expressed in in horrific ways and and one of my speakers said that like we're not in the 1940s putin in a way is is the weimar republic of russia we are we are prior to um you know the equivalent of the nazis taking over we're not actually in that phase and you can see how that sense of loss that sense of betrayal by the generals by the leaders and set that that could turn extremely toxic and we're starting to see some initial signs of that, aren't we, in this military blogger community that has risen up during the war. So any kind of liberal opposition voices, absolutely not tolerated. But extreme nationalist and military bloggers, they're not untouchable, but they certainly seem to have a lot more leeway to express their opinions. Yes, absolutely. And you know, I do think Russia is, is heading for defeat. But as you say, you know, Germany also lost two world wars. And it's a very different Germany that came out after the First World War and the Second World War. And, you know, we don't know yet uh, which one it's going to be this time, but but it might be the Weimar Republic, as you said. And that means that, you know, as bad as it is right now, you know, it, it might it, it might not be better in the 2030s. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad we're talking about this because it seemed all the way through this this uh, crisis that, when you talk to uh, Eastern Europeans, when you talk to people from the Nordics, Finland, the Baltics, and any countries apart from Hungary uh, that were occupied by the Russians during the Soviet period, they kind of just instinctively understand what's going on. They they know what Russia's game is, uh, and they are prepared to do everything not to fall under the influence of Russia again. Um that knowledge doesn't seem to be quite so sort of prevalent the further west you move, with the exception of Britain, perhaps. Um, I mean, what are your thoughts on that, Denmark being somewhere, you know, between the two? Yeah, I think Denmark in this is, uh, I guess, on the hawkish side. Um, but uh, it's it, it's definitely true that that you have that, that thing where Eastern European countries now have the right to say, you know, see what, what we've been saying for years, this is what this is what Russia is like. Um, and and you have the further you get from 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 Russia, then you know there is a different perspective. But um, I I think this has, after all, united the West in 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 a way we haven't seen for a very long time. Um, and I think we're gradually also getting to the point where there is a realization in the broader West that you, you know. Russia has to lose this war on the battlefield and uh, that uh, that we need to equip uh, them the way that uh, we need to equip Ukraine to to win that way. Um, so um, I, I think at least that's my hope that uh, Western European countries are also learning now that, uh, you know, there are things here we need to do in order to to get this right. And as I said, the war is basically now about where is the new Iron Curtain going to be and that we need to help Ukraine be on the Western side of that Iron Curtain. Well, that's, I think, a strong and, and decisive statement to end on. Uh, and as I'm incredibly uh, grateful to you for spending the time today to share your expertise and insight, and I'm going to strongly recommend uh, the audience to check out your channel. We've put a link to it. We've also now uh, got a sort of playlist of the best channels to look at if you want to learn more about Ukraine and Russia. Uh, check those out on the channel. Good luck as you develop your audience further. And thank you so much. Well, thank you very much for having me here. <laughs>